Hi listeners of the History of the Netherlands podcast. My name is David Cott and I'm the host of the History of Spain podcast, a podcast where I talk about the history of my motherland right from the beginning. The history of Spain and the Netherlands are quite connected, as you know, mainly due to the 80 years war. My mission is to destroy these heretic Protestants who are in open revolt and protect those who are loyal to the mighty Catholic Spanish Empire. Join me to defend the true faith, or the Duke of Alba will put you on trial and execute you. Okay, okay, jokes aside, the Dutch revolt is still some years ahead in the schedule. As for now, I'm currently finishing the Visigothic period, so I am about to start the complex period of Muslim Spain and the so-called Reconquista. I hope you join me in my journey. I will let you listen to the podcast of these heretics. For now. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 11, The Murder of Floris V. Leiden first brought thee forth, thy race did make thee great. Within the country Holland thou didst halt thy sovereign seat. Thy wife Eliza was, Rome did thee elect. The Hague thou madest chief place for laws, thy people to protect. In Harlem at thy charge, a cloister thou didst make. In Friesland, fighting in thine arms, death life from thee did take. Twice ten years thou wast earl, and seven years a king. Death neither spareth potentate, nor any living thing. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands. And a big thank you to David from the History of Spain podcast for his slightly terrifying introduction. We assure you, David, we are still loyal. And should that change, we will still at least sing to the honour of your king in our national anthem. Today, we are going to break the pattern of the last few episodes and make the outrageous move of not talking about Belgium. I know, it's crazy. We've talked a lot about the social changes which were taking place throughout the southern lowlands over the last few episodes, but today we are going to move back north and focus our attention on how the area which, after various disastrous floods cut it off from Friesland proper during the 13th century, became known as West Friesland, and which would, by the end of that century, be conquered and subdued by the warlords of the House of Holland. We're going to cover anti-kings, people falling through ice, a son's revenge for his father's murder, peasant uprisings, backstabbing nobles, kidnappings, and mob violence. Never a dull moment in our little swamp. If you cast your mind back to episode 6, you may remember that we mentioned how around the time of the Viking invasions in the 900s, a certain count by the name of Dirk, was able to establish himself in the far western extremes of the lowlands, where he founded a nunnery which eventually became known as Egmont Abbey, and he fortified himself in a small territory which became known as Holland. Where the name Holland comes from is uncertain. Some claim that it derives from Holtland, literally meaning wooded land. Over the next few centuries, various descendants of the House of Holland ruled the area, most of them called Dirk, or Floris, 
and they engaged in almost constant warfare against the Bishop of Utrecht to the east, the Frisians to the north, and Flanders to the south. By coupling this warfare with large-scale land reclamation efforts, the County of Holland was able to develop into a small but somewhat influential part of the patchwork of lowlander territories within the larger Holy Roman Empire. After the death of Emperor Henry VI in 1197, an inheritance dispute raged at the highest level of European politics over who would become the new Holy Roman Emperor. The two factions were the families of Welf and Hohenstaufen. The lowlander nobles of the different territories such as Brabant, Helders, Holland, and Flanders all had to make decisions on which family's imperial ascension would best suit their own interests, as did the highest levels of the church, the Pope's influence always being something that had to be taken into account for incumbent and aspiring claimants. Alliances were made through marriage, inheritance, and war, which all linked back to the power plays between these two factions. When the Count of Holland, Floris IV, died at a tournament in northern France in 1234, his son, William II, born in Leiden, was just seven years old. So his uncles, one of which was also the Bishop of Utrecht, became his regents until 1239 when he came of age. The emperor during this period was of the Hohenstaufen family, Frederick II. Unfortunately for Frederick, by the 1240s, he had not managed to keep the Pope on side and was excommunicated. There was even a crusade waged against him. Eventually, out of all the turmoil that this caused, the Welf supporters, the Bishop of Cologne and the Duke of Brabant, conspired to have young William II elected as an anti-emperor in 1246. When we say anti-emperor, we don't mean that he was against all things emperors, rather that he was an alternative claimant to the throne, seen as legitimate by some in the empire, but not by others. The Hohenstaufen faction in Germany, of course, ignored the excommunication of Frederick II, and when he died, they elected his son as an emperor, Conrad IV, in 1250. So now, two people were rocking around calling themselves emperor, and one of them was our man William II, the Count of Holland, and now, as far as we're concerned, the King of the Romans. Woo! In 1247, William began construction of a series of buildings, including a grand Riddersaal, or Knight's Hall, at the place of his father's birth, a small village known as Tihache, the Hague. These buildings would collectively become known as the Binnenhof, or Inner Court, and while they would, for a short time, be the official residence of the Counts of Holland, more importantly, they would eventually become the epicenter of Dutch national politics. Today, the Parliament of the Netherlands sits there, and every year the King of the Netherlands delivers a speech in September from a throne in the Riddersaal to mark the beginning of the new parliamentary year. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The Hohenstaufen supporters were now on the back foot in the lowlands. William set about solidifying his power in this corner of the empire and pushed his enemies into holding up in the former center of Charlemagne's empire, the city of Aachen. This is still where the emperors were crowned and the city refused William or his supporters entry for this honor. So he had the town laid to siege. He was joined in this by the Counts of Helders and Hanol and the Archbishop of Cologne, the Bishop-elect of Liege, 
and later by forces from Brabant, Flanders, Artois, and finally, also a force of West Frisians. William did the most Dutch thing ever and had a large dam built on the river Worm, whereby large portions of Aachen became flooded, and the citizens negotiated their surrender by the end of October 1247. William and his retinue entered, and he was crowned as the Emperor accordingly. At this point in our story, we are right now hitting the same period that we covered in the previous episode, when in Flanders the Flemish Count was trying to wade his way through the intense politics between England and France, and which would culminate in the South with the Battle of the Golden Spurs. The Counts of Holland would become as heavily involved in the alliance building that was going on as all the other higher nobility, not only with and against England, Flanders, and France, but also in terms of the family feud we spoke about in that episode. This was the inheritance feud that had stemmed from Margaret of Flanders, that woman who'd been married twice and had created the lines of the Avens and the Dampiers. These two families hated each other, and since one had been given rule of Hanno and the other of Flanders in the 1240s, they had been building up marriage alliances to try and to try and encircle one another. William had an auntie, Adelaide of Holland, who would be married to John I of Aven. So in terms of that conflict, Holland was with the Avens and against the Dampiers, who were the Counts of Flanders. For centuries, there had been two particular conflicts that had occupied many of the Counts of Holland. The struggle to their south with Flanders was over control of Zeeland. In the north, it was the Frisians. William turned his attention to these. Zeeland was pretty easy, even though Countess Margaret of Flanders put up a valiant effort. In the end, William had just been named the Holy Roman Emperor, and as Holy Roman Emperor, he had the power to decide who was the count of the territories that he was the sovereign ruler of. So, he simply named himself the Count of Zeeland, and then, in 1253, he made his point by defeating a Flemish army in battle near Valkeren in Zeeland. During the battle, the sons of Countess Margaret, Guy, remember we spoke about Guy in the previous episode, and his brother John of Dampierre were both taken prisoner and brought back to Holland, where they remained prisoners of William until their ransom and release three years later. Friesland was a more difficult thing for William. The Frisians had been notoriously autonomous-minded since Roman times. The Frisians recognized only the German emperor as their ruler, not any of the other intermediate nobility who claimed to be their count, and besides that, maintained a fairly egalitarian society, drawn from obstinate independence. They simply refuted the superiority of the Count of Holland. They had, however, supported William II in Aachen, thinking that this would be to ensure the continuation of that independence. But upon his ascension, and naming himself also the Count of Zeeland, William began to fortify his borders, building castles and also giving rights to new urban centres. From him, towns such as Harlem, Delft and Alkmaar got their first rights. When his competitor for the crown, Conrad IV, died in 1254, William was now the sole King of the Romans and he was invited by the Pope to Rome to be crowned there in full glory as the Holy Roman Emperor. But about this same time, the people of West Friesland revolted against him and began making raids into Holland. 
So William decided he would be better off sorting out matters at home first instead of taking a fancy trip to Rome, and he went about waging war against them. He was going to subdue them once and for all. His first attempt was in the summer of 1255, making an expedition north past Alkmaar. Although his army infringed into West Frisian territory, they were bogged down by the morass of the region, especially once heavy rains began to fall. As we well know from our experiences in Flanders' last episode, knights and horses are bloody useless on muddy ground. So William II waited until winter. The frozen waterways of the boggy swamp provided harder ground than the summer mud had, especially in the case of two inland seas that his strategy demanded he cross, the Hirhuchovard and the Schermer. He split his army into two, giving command of one half, which included most of the knights, to William van Brederode, whom he ordered to move northeast towards Maidenblick. The idea was to draw the Frisians into battle with Van Brederode's units, while William then took the other half of his forces and moved them north to cross the frozen Hirhuchovard and to pincer the Frisians between them. The force under Van Brederode dallied, however, and are said to have created havoc amongst the local population by raiding their cows. The Frisian warriors intelligently refused to meet them in open combat, however. As William's army moved further north, he began to lose patience as he moved on and on into the ice. Finally, though, he was able to ambush the Frisians in a reed forest near a place called Hochwald. The ice, however, produced as many problems for him and his soldiers as the mud had in the summer before. Men and horse and equipments all slipped and slid along. They could not contain the West Frisians. William took a small unit and moved forward on horse, but his haste was greater than any of his men. Attempting to cross, it is thought, another body of frozen water called the Berkamir, he found himself alone, with the promise of destruction of his enemy driving him on. But then, the ice cracked. His great horse fell through, in full armour and in full view of the West Frisians who he had been hunting, the Holy Roman Emperor crashed into the cold darkness, whereupon those same said West Frisians came screaming out of hiding, pulled him up, and beat him to death with their clubs. It is unlikely that as they were killing him, they knew who he was. However, there were apparently Hollanders amongst them, men who had been banished for crimes, but who recognised the sigil of the King of the Romans. It would have set off a panic of debate amongst the West Frisians, and in the end, they solved their problem the way that most people wish they could solve their problems, and they buried it under a house. They closed their mouths, kept their heads down, and hoped that nobody ever found out. So William and Holland's campaign against the West Frisians came to an initially dramatic, but ultimately unclimactic end, with the armies dispersing. Even though they had effectively beaten the West Frisians, they were so freaked out about the loss of their king who had ridden off into the icy, reedy forest and never returned, that they lost their courage and retreated back to Holland. So much like those Hollander armies, we are now going to retreat for a moment to do some ad breaks. But don't worry, just like William's son, Floris V, we'll be back shortly looking for revenge.
Upon the death of William II in 1256, his son, Floris V, became the Count of Holland and Zeeland. Like his father before him, when thrust into this new position, he was not experienced at leadership, military strategy, or life in general, given that he was only two years old. His mother, Elizabeth of Brunswick-Luneburg, remained to look after him, but his guardianship went to his uncle, who was also called Floris, and who would become known as Floris the Guardian. Floris the Guardian had commanded the Hollander army in 1253 when it had made battle with the Flemish in Valkyrie. He was the one who captured the Dampierre brothers. He ruled as his nephew's guardian until he was mortally injured in a tournament in Antwerp in 1258. Thereafter, responsibility for the young Count of Holland went to the Duke of Brabant, Henry IV. Henry IV was one of those rulers who got the short straw in the hereditary gene stake. Presumably, all the years of noble inbreeding had had an impact, and he was seen as, quote, infirm of both body and mind, end quote. He was deposed in 1257, and the governorship of Holland became a disputed matter, with Floris V still not of age. His auntie, Adelaide of Holland, became regent in 1258, and she got support from some quarters of the ruling elite there. But other nobles and barons and lords all threw their weight behind the Count of Helders, Otto II. As we know, disputes such as this in the Middle Ages, if they could not be solved by a pithy marriage here and a trade concession there, would best find resolution in a spot of bloody battle. The two sides met at Reimerswal in January 1263, and Otto II prevailed. He would be the regent of Holland until Floris V was considered old enough to rule, which, by the way, was only 12 and happened in 1266. You can imagine, in a time of chivalric honour and the nobility of bloodlines, that Floris V grew up listening to stories of his glorious father, William II, King of the Romans, who had disappeared while leading an army into the bloody Frisian hinterlands. It is easy to consider how the need for revenge stewed within the childlike fantasies of a boy being raised as a prince and turned into an obsession for a teenager who suddenly had his own army and who had been trained his whole life to use it. We can assume this to have been the case, given that Floris in 1272 set about the same course that had been laid out by his forebears and he went to subdue the West Frisians once more. This time, however, he was urged on by the need for revenge and for the recapture of his imperial father's remains. Although not having known his father, Floris seems to have been driven on by his ghost. Floris's moves against the West Frisians involved setting up a powerful new defense system along the border of the two respective territories. He focused his attention just north of the town of Alkmaar, which had been granted city rights by his father, and he had two new castles built near the town, as well as a new dike through the swampy terrain which would make it easier for his armies to move north into West Friesland. This was met by fierce resistance from the West Frisians who attacked the dike workers with bow and arrow. Floris and his army were eventually forced to withdraw, and so his first attempt to avenge the death of his noble father ended in ignominious failure. In 1274, Holland got caught up in the same kind of social unrest that we spoke about in the last episode, when we were talking about Flanders and the struggles for power between 
commoners, including craftsmen, farmers and merchants, and the lower nobility, barons, knights, lords, etc. Disgruntled peasants in Kenemerland revolted. They went on a rampage through western Holland, pulling down castles and manor homes and forcing the nobility of that area to hide behind the walls of the town of Harlem. People from the surrounding areas, such as Vaterland and Amsterland, joined in the revolt, and a group of ambitious nobles from the borderlands between Holland and Utrecht, led by one Gijsbrecht van Amstel and his brother-in-law Herman van Voorden, decided to side with these peasants against the young Count Floris. Like we've seen throughout this whole thing, this was another case of some lesser nobles hoping to climb the ladder of chaos to a higher position for themselves. Gijsbrecht van Amstel had already been a thorn in the side of the Bishop of Utrecht, John of Nassau, for a few years. John had been forced to give him his own castle at Frederland due to his own terrible financial position, and now he was bolstered by an army of peasants. So he marched to the walls of Utrecht itself. Once there, one of these commoners in this army, a Kenemer, apparently made a rousing speech which incited members of the guilds of Utrecht to sympathize with their cause and to throw out the nobles and the magistrates of the town. This they did. Floris V, however, was not as green as he was cabbage-looking. Realizing that the pressure point lay in the shaky alliance between commoners and the lower nobility, he began to give concessions to the commoners. By doing this, he brought them back around to his side. These concessions were designed to placate a railing mob. He evened up the rights between farmers in dune lands and farmers in polders or reclaim land. He granted privileges to different towns, also as a compensation for the damages that they had incurred during the conflict. That is how in 1275, the people from a small town that had built up around a dam on the river Amstel were given the right to not pay tolls on goods they moved through the waters of the county of Holland. Thus, for the first time in the written record, do we read of a town called Amstelladamme, or as it would later become known, Amsterdam. The town that would go on to become the financial and commercial hub of a vast trading empire was first built on a tax break. Go figure. In 1278, Gijsbrecht van Amstel and Herman van Voorden were captured by Floris, and the rebellion was over. In the aftermath of these uprisings, the weak Bishop of Utrecht, this John of Nassau, agreed to hand over the lands of those rebellious lords, which he had in theory been the ruler of, to Floris as compensation for his assistance in putting an end to the rebellion. Holland was, as a result, larger by the end of this series of events, considerably at the expense of Utrecht. Now, Floris could turn his attention back to his foreign policies, primarily dealing with the Dampiers to the south and the West Frisians in the north. Let's not forget his burning desire to get some filial revenge for the murder of his father and to retrieve his remains. In terms of foreign policy, Floris V made some bold moves. He had a daughter, Margaret, whom in 1281 he arranged to have married to the Crown Prince of England, Alfonso, the son of Edward I. Things were looking peachy for him, and now he could go to West Friesland and find his father. So one decade after his first attempt, Floris went north once more to subdue the West Frisians in 1282. Rather than just marching beyond Alkmaar as he and his father had previously done, he equipped a naval force 
to sail around the islands of Tessel and to attack from the Zauder Zee. With this, he had far greater success, meeting the Frisians in battle near the town of Fraunen. Despite seemingly also suffering many losses, the Frisians eventually succumbed. The story then comes down to us that, following this victory and some well-directed inquiries, an old man was found who could purportedly lead the Count of Holland to where his father's bones lay. Floris was taken to a house and had his men dig underneath the floor. Sure enough, the bones of his venerable father were found, and he could finally take them to Middleburg in Zeeland, where he had a princely crypt built for the family. Over the following years, Floris's garrison of castles allowed him to bring West Friesland fully under his control. He had thousands imprisoned and was even said to have had killed all West Frisians of fighting age. There was a stout resistance, but then the most expected thing in the lowlands happened in 1287 and again in 1288, when great floods further devastated the region and broke the back of West Frisian independence from Holland. Although this would not be the last attempt of Frisians and West Frisians exerting themselves against their expansionist neighbours, from 1299 the Counts of Holland would also be calling themselves the Counts of West Friesland. In 1284, Floris's plans for his daughter fell apart when her betrothed, Alfonso, the Earl of Chester and Crown Prince of England, died. Floris would not get a royal grandchild after all, but another opportunity for his ascension would soon arise. The King of Scotland at this time was Alexander III. He had sired three children, but only one of them, a daughter, had survived childhood. She had been married to the King of Norway and had a daughter of her own. Alexander's sons had both perished. So, besides his Norwegian granddaughter, there was no obvious successor to the throne should ill befall him. And, well, ill would him befall. In 1286, he rode a horse off a steep embankment in the middle of the night and broke his back, being found dead in the morning. His nine-year-old granddaughter, therefore, the so-called Maid of Norway, was put on a ship and sent to be crowned as his successor. When neither her nor her ship arrived, however, the Scottish throne fell into serious international questioning. For anyone who could make any claim to its inheritance, now was the time to do so. And guess who felt he also had a claim? Yep, our man Flo V. Floris V had a great-grandmother called Arda of Huntington who had also been the sister to the old king, William I of Scotland. She was therefore also the great auntie of the now backbroken and dead Alexander III of Scotland. So Floris could make a claim to that throne, and he would. But first, he had to deal with some other family issues. His auntie Adelaide of Holland had married John of Avenne, Floris himself had married one of Guy of Dampier's daughters in 1269, but this had not ceased the enmity between his family, aligned with the events, and the Flemish Dampiers. Guy of Dampier had been imprisoned after defeat by Floris's uncle back in 1253, and eventually found a way to repay the favour in 1290. The clash point between Holland and Flanders was Zeeland and control over access into the Schelt estuary. A part of this had been granted to Floris by the new Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf, 
in 1287. The local nobility, however, had rejected this in favour of Flanders, so Floris went down to treat with Guy over the matter. Guy took his revenge and locked up Floris until he reneged on his claim over Zeeland. Floris, slightly curtailed by this, then went about trying to secure his claim to the Scottish throne. He went to Scotland twice, between 1291 and 1292, to tell people there that he should be the king. When this failed and a bloke called John de Balliol was coronated instead, Floris hung around for the ceremony just to be like, yo, I'm chill. I just thought it was, you know, up for grabs. And out of this, he was granted his inheritance through Adelaide, and he also became the Earl of Garioch, or Garioch. Floris could rightfully have been annoyed by all of this, and he likely was. His claim was, in the end, not a bad one. However, the select nobles who eventually chose the new Scottish king had been led by the King of England, Edward I. Surprisingly, Floris and Edward seem to have been relatively close, and it has been suggested that Edward even voiced nominal support for his claim to the Scottish throne. Floris visited his court more than once, and as we know, had managed to broker a marriage deal a decade earlier. In fact, even though this marriage deal had expired following Edward's son doing the same, during these trips to Scotland, Floris had visited again and managed to negotiate a new marriage deal, this time between his infant son, John, and Edward's daughter, Elizabeth. But in not truly supporting Floris's claim to the Scottish throne, the English king had done what he was pretty consistent at doing, and acted in his best interests. He was looking at subjugating the Scots for good, and wanted a king who was fairly malleable to him. John de Balliol, a relatively obscure figure, seems to have been just that. Edward began to treat him and Scotland as vassals, and this would see Balliol deposed after only four years by a council of Scottish nobles, who then went and sought out alliance with the French. This, in turn, would result in an English invasion and the beginning of the Scottish Wars of Independence. Things could have been very different had Floris become the Scottish king instead. But this is something that Edward likely would simply never have allowed, as doing so would have risked himself being encircled by a gnarly Hollandic Scottish pincer. The Highlands and the Lowlands, united, would have been quite the thing. And actually, completely off topic, that reminds us of a classic drinking song that comes from the British Isles. You got your Highland Dutch and your Lowland Dutch, your Rotterdam Dutch and your Goddamn Dutch. When God made the Irish, well, he didn't make much, but we're a hell of a lot better than the Goddamn Dutch. <laughs> there you go. Inspiration for drinking songs. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. At about the time that Floris didn't get the Scottish throne, things were really hotting up across the Lowlands. In the south, the French were rampaging through Flanders, and so the power struggles we've covered between the Flemish count, the urban elite, and the working class in towns were really beginning to intensify. The English king, Edward I, was positioning himself against the French. He promised help to the Dampiers against them, but he also made a marriage alliance with Brabant, and that resulted in big changes as well. We have covered how important English wool had become, and especially for the Flemish cloth towns. But the wool staple, that is the town where all the English wool had to come in first, had been Dordrecht in Holland. Edward, at the time he made this alliance with Brabant, changed the staple to Mekele in Brabant. This was a real 
middle finger in Floris's direction. It became compounded when in 1294, Edward I then affianced his now son and heir, Edward the Prince of Wales, to Guy's daughter, Philippa. This angered the King of France very much, and it resulted in all of Guy, his sons, and Philippa ending up imprisoned by the French king, as we explored in the previous episode. But in the north, it just really annoyed Floris V, as the tensions between the English and the French increased, given they were getting within decades of the beginnings of the Hundred Years' War, the Count of Holland had to consider which side he was going to be on. Should he choose the side with the English, who he had been building a relationship with for years, but who had now also allied with his hated enemies, the Dampiers? Or would it be doing the right thing, as an event, to align with the French and their allies instead? His mate, the English king, had not backed him in the Scottish succession as he could have. He made all these marriage alliances against France, but which brought the hated Dampiers into the fold, and he had taken a huge source of income out of Holland and put it into Brabant. So Floris did the event thing. He went against the Dampiers, he went against Brabant, and he went against the English king. He allied with France. In the historical narrative of this sequence of events, then almost immediately a conspiracy was formed against him. Shortly after Floris had declared for France, representatives of the English king met with the Flemish count, the Duke of Brabant, and two lords from Holland, with whom we have dealt before. They were the humiliated Lord Gijsbrecht van Amstel and Lord Hermann van Voorde, who had tried and failed in the 1270s to use the peasants' revolt in Holland to forge their own little territory for themselves. Now they were back, and now they were going to get back at the Count of Holland. And so it was that in 1296, Floris V was invited to Utrecht to feast and celebrate with the noblemen and the magistracy there. The host was one Gerard van Velsen, who owned land in Holland but was actually a vassal to both the Bishop of Utrecht and the Duke of Brabant. After dinner, when Floris had gone for a little nap, van Velsen came to his quarters and suggested they go hawking instead. Floris bloody loved hawking, and so he was completely down with this. He went and got a horse, and a bird, a merlin to be exact, and a small group which included those lords of Amstel and Vorder. They all went off looking for a reported large flock of heron in the area. But shock, horror, it was a trap. No more than a kilometer outside of Utrecht, Floris was led into an ambush. Van Velsen was the first to lay a hand on him, and though Floris fought back and reached for his sword, he was overcome. Being constrained, he was bundled up and taken to Mouderslot Castle. From there, it is supposed they planned to sneak him away to England. However, word soon went around the county that the prince had been taken and men from Kenemerland, Vaterland, and West Friesland grabbed weapons and headed out in search of their lord. When the conspirators realized this the next day, they went about moving the count to a different, more secretive location. They were, however, discovered by a mob of peasants from nearby Narden, who were looking for their count, and a hot pursuit ensued. The count, tied up and on horseback, could not control his horse, and neither, it seems, could his horse jump and frolic like horses usually can, as it fell into a ditch. That these commoners were out trying to find and protect their lord goes to show how much respect Floris had garnered from the lower classes, and when they came near Van Velsen and the Count, 
Van Velsen freaked out, and he struck out at the Count with his sword 21 times. He then fled off into the distance. When the rescuers found the Count, he was drawing his last breaths. They tried to take him to a more secure location, but alas, he died in their arms. Floris V had ruled for 42 years, since inheriting Holland at 18 months old, and under his watch, Holland expanded in size and population. He oversaw massive infrastructural projects, gave out rights to peasants and urban commoners, even earning the nickname the God of the Peasants. He attached his name to what would become the oldest document known to mention the city, which would go on to become the most influential in all of the lowlands, Amsterdam. He mercilessly subdued the Frisians, avenged his father's murder, and attempted to become the King of Scotland. Most of all, though, he turned the county of Holland into a serious player on the chessboard of the lowlands. In 1615, Edward Grimestone released A General History of the Netherlands, wherein he recounted the lives of many Dutch dukes and counts. He wrote a little poem about all of them. At the start of this episode, I read one about William II. Of his son, Floris V, or Florentius Quintius, as Grimestone called him, which if you ask us is a way better name than Flores. This is what he wrote. In just revenge of father's death thou spiltst the blood, of frisons that had him destroyed, and thee withstood, and having taken his body from the place where it lay, entombed in Middleburg, from whence thou took'st thy way, to Flanders to abate their pride, that quietly gave thee their princess for thy spouse and for her dower, whole Flanders, but when thou to hunt in woods was gone, thy foes thee slew, when thou hadst ruled for forty years and one. Floris was succeeded by his son, John, but John died at fifteen, leaving no heirs. Thus did the noble house of Holland disappear from the world stage. In their stead, they left the county of Holland, which would pass on to the Aven family, with Floris V's cousin, John of Aven, then becoming the new count. So out of all this, the Avens had done pretty well. They were now the Counts of Holland and West Friesland, Zeeland, and Hanau, a powerful union of counties that would last for the next 50 years. But those next 50 years will have to wait. As for us, that is all for today's episode. If you're enjoying History of the Netherlands, don't forget to leave a review on any platform you can also check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash historyofthenetherlands, Twitter at historyofnl, and of course you can check out our mother website, republicofamsterdamradio.com, where we do not only this podcast, but many other projects aside. At the very least, just tell your mum about us or something like that. Get her listening, get anyone else, and until next time, doei! This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.